0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. be attentive. This exclamation is part of the rich liturgy of the Byzantine Catholic Church. At key moments in the Byzantine service, such as the reading of the gospel, a deacon or a priest exclaims with great vigor, be attentive. There's something really appealing about this. Now, its origins are both ancient and vague, but it could have originated as an Admonition to a boisterous congregation. So watch out. But today in the service, it serves as a joyful invitation to worshipers, basically saying, Listen up, everybody. What you're about to hear is really important and not to be missed. So be attentive. This morning's reading from the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 13 is worthy of this great exclamation, because this morning we hear the message of our salvation spoken directly to us, and we are all invited to respond. We'll first look at the passage in the context of its remarkable timing within the big picture of the history of the Christian church. And then at the different ways that hearers of the gospel respond to it. First, the timing. The timing is really significant here. The Acts of the Apostles chronicles events of a specific time and a specific place in history. Our time this morning is about A.D. 42. The place, Pisidian Antioch, a city in ancient Asia Minor, which today is Turkey. And the story's important because it records an event that has directly impacted each of us. It's, that is that the gospel we see this morning being intentionally presented to the Gentile, that is, non-Jewish congregation. It's important also because we see here the church being planted very far away from its spiritual and physical epicenter in Jerusalem. And also because we observe one of the great missionaries of all time in action, and that is the Apostle Paul. in Antioch is a stop about midway through Paul's first missionary journey. And as I said, it's about A.D. 46. And dates are important here. Because this is just over a decade after the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, which itself was only 40 days after the ascension of Jesus. And this relative proximity to the, to the gospel, or to Pentecost, is very important. Now, we know from a very vivid account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, specifically verse 10, that people from this specific region of Asia Minor were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in two weeks, that that great spiritual earthquake when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descended with such power as God's great gift to us. It's also the day when the church was, if not born, at least launched outward from Jerusalem. Acts tells us, that eyewitnesses from throughout the entire Roman world were in Jerusalem on that very day. And about 3,000 people were baptized. And as it says, added to the number of believers, 3,000. Now this event in and of itself would have been unforgettable. But imagine the excitement of those present as they return to their far-flung communities and share their stories about this mighty work of God. Countless seeds of the gospel would be sown throughout the entire world, waiting for the right moment to be nurtured and harvested. It's very possible that some of those seeds were sown around Pisidian Antioch. And by the time of Paul's arrival in 42 A.D., the city was large. It was a well-established Roman colony with an estimated population of about 50,000. And very important to our story is that it was also a significant hub of those good Roman roads we read about in our history classes and that robust Roman trade. It had a significant Jewish population, but as a Roman colony, the population would have been predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish. Notice how all of these various factors intersect at this particular moment in time to make this the ideal time and the ideal place to first plant and then to launch the gospel out in every direction of the Roman world. But what's needed is a spark plug. Enter, stage right, the Apostle Paul. Chapter 13 shows us why Paul is already establishing a very controversial reputation. On the one hand, he's he's a great teacher. He's a great preacher. He's a gospel bearer. He's bringing hope and salvation and new life to countless people. But on the other hand, others consider him a dangerous heretic, a serious troublemaker. He seems to leave a trail of chaos wherever he goes. Why? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is that Paul's gospel message demands of each of its hearers a response. And that makes people very uncomfortable. Now, this morning's story continues immediately after last week's. After arriving in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and his companions do as they always do. They attend a service at the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is a natural starting point for them. The Jewish people know and revere the great and rich traditions of the Old Testament, and they certainly know their story. As does Paul, who, remember, is a devout, well-educated Jew who studied with one of the greatest Jewish scholars of his age. And as a visitor, he's invited by the rulers of the synagogue to offer what they call any words of encouragement to the people. Well, little did they know what they were inviting. But he begins, as he always does, at the beginning of the story. And he recalls God's great story of salvation, particularly focusing on, at this time, the chosen people of Israel. And he teaches with great passion, great clarity, and in a way that every synagogue here would understand. But there is one important addition to the story. Paul does not end with the continuing expectation of a future Messiah, but with a stunning announcement that the Messiah has come he says god has brought to israel a savior jesus as he promised and then another stunning revelation let it be known to you that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's hard to overstate how radical this statement is to his Jewish audience in the synagogue. To them, the law is foundational, even sacrosanct. But as Jesus himself taught so powerfully in and of itself, the law could not bring new life, but only, in many instances, condemnation. It had become a harsh measuring rod, exposing the inevitable failures of God's people. But here, this morning, is a new message. The law was fulfilled in Jesus, and the sins of humanity once and for all atoned for in his sacrifice on the cross. Paul declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. It should be no surprise that responses to this message were mixed. Let's look at those responses, though, from both Paul's Jewish and his Gentile audiences, And we'll look at all of chapter 13, if you want to pull out your pew Bibles and look at all of chapter 13, which does include this morning's verses. And there are three broad categories to these these responses, acceptance, rejection, curiosity. First, acceptance from the synagogue congregation. For many here this morning in that synagogue setting, Paul's carefully crafted message rings true. He begins with God's leading the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He segues seamlessly from references to Abraham, to King David, finally to Jesus, the son of David, foretold by the prophets and the long-awaited Messiah. Now, this is a different Messiah from what many had come to expect. This Messiah brings not political freedom, but freedom from sin and its condemning power. If you take a second today to look at that argument, you'll see that it's flawless. He uses scriptural proof text masterly. And it's important to remember that he is speaking this morning to his own people in his letter to the Philippians that he wrote much later, but he's proud to, to claim, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am as to the law of Pharisee. He has great credentials with this congregation. And as a result, we hear that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and his companion Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there's clearly significant acceptance of the gospel by many in this synagogue setting. Now, last week we were told that after this first synagogue meeting, he was invited to come back and continue next week. And that's where we pick up today's reading with the amazing statement that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Imagine. This probably means that the assembly had to move from the synagogue out onto the streets to accommodate what which would eventually probably become a very large Gentile audience. But before we go there, we must uh, note that during the week between these two meetings, a significant opposition has been festering. We hear, but when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And this is the moment. At this moment of crisis, God uses Paul to turn the great shining light of the gospel onto a people long left in the dark. The Gentiles. This is the be attentive moment when Paul says in Acts 13, 46 and 47, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Jewish people, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is such great news for us. Now, this is not a reactionary decision by Paul, made at the spur of the moment. He's simply living into and facing into God's perfect timing. Paul knows as well as anyone that the Old Testament prophets record a long history of resistance to the word of the Lord, especially from the religious leaders. Again and again, the prophets' calls to repentance are ignored and the prophets themselves subjected to rejection and persecution. And the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. When God first calls Abram, later Abraham, In Genesis 12, the Gentiles are included in the big picture. He says to Abram, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. And this is repeated in the Isaiah 42 passage that Paul quotes in today's lesson. I have made you a light for the Gentile that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And today we see this happening. There's a great door being opened, and the circle of God's people is widened to include us. Paul also is in a great position to understand that the Gentiles, that, to whom he speaks to the next week, are steeped in a very, very different spiritual tradition. The religions of Greece and Rome, which dominated Pisidian Antioch at this particular time, were many, varied, and complicated. So this encouraged syncretism, the combination of a variety of religions and cultures and schools of thought, sort of a smorgasbord of religions. But Paul will have none of that. While not quoted in Acts, Paul makes this very clear in a later letter to the Corinthian church. For while there may be so-called small g-gods in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And many respond. Now, perhaps the relative, quote-unquote, simplicity of the gospel is a relief for the spiritual quagmire that must have ensnared many of the Gentiles. Because when the Gentiles heard this, we hear in Acts, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, and as many were appointed for eternal life, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Again, do you see why this is such an important moment? Rejection. We've already seen aspects of that second response, rejection. But why, why does it always seem to be so vehement? Well, because let's face it, everything is at stake. Everything is at stake for these religious leaders who are opposing it. Just as Jesus challenged the religious status quo, so too does Paul. And to those who do not accept or cannot accept Jesus as the Messiah, the gospel is heresy. There are genuine theological differences here, which cannot be ignored, but there also are some serious non-theological issues at work here. Issues of control, of status, of power, of cultural ethnic prejudice. The gospel demands fundamental change, which will always be fiercely resisted by some. So the opposition, quote, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. As you follow the missionary journeys of Paul, you see that more often than not, his missions end with being driven out of the district. Some, maybe many Gentiles, would also have rejected the gospel, That's unbelievable. That never happened. Or in a world of many gods itself, this is heretical in its monotheism. Finally, there's a third response to the gospel that oftentimes does or can lead to acceptance or rejection, and that's curiosity. Some in Paul's audience might have been fascinated by this new and strange teaching. Others might have significant questions or trivial questions to be answered. Still, others may have a deep interest but need more time and more personal attention. So, after their first teaching, verse 42 tells us as Paul and Barnabas were leaving, the people invited them to speak further on these things on the next Sabbath. So, there's obviously a desire here for more information to explore to debate, to argue. And there's plenty of room for that. Acceptance, rejection, curiosity. We see it all in this particular passage. And as we look at the whole of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we just sense this this constant turmoil and upheaval. We see, on the one hand, the gospel joyfully accepted by countless people. Lives are changed forever, and the early church taking root and growing. But we also see the gospel rejected, some with a shrug, but others with great violence and persecution. Now we know that Jesus' call to his followers to pick up our crosses and follow him daily is difficult. We know that his call to die to self To die to power, to die to influence, is difficult. And, of course, there are always questions and uncertainty. But in the end, the gospel is an invitation that deserves a response. And in a world that's obsessed by choice being a privilege, and in a culture screaming, be attentive, but be attentive to this shampoo, or be attentive to this pet food. Choice can be paralyzing rather than liberating. So, if you're hearing this gospel message either for the first time or the hundredth time and want this morning to accept it, or if you've rejected it out of hand in the past for whatever reason, or if you're curious, and have some questions to be answered. We're so glad you're here. And there will be people in the chapel during the communion that would love to pray with you and love to talk with you. So be attentive and listen for the rest of the service to what the Lord may be saying to you on this day. Amen.